So please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. We're going to look at the first 27 verses. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 27. If you don't own a Bible, we have some Bibles at the door that we would love to give to you, or gift to you, so you can take it home and study God's Word with us as well. Anybody get blown away this week by the wind? How many of you guys had damage to your, to your home, a fence, a roof? All right, well, we're, we're praying for you guys. I, I, I'm thinking about going into building fences. So I hear there's a great need for that. The, no, you don't want me building your fence. It'd be, be terrible. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the, your faithfulness in our lives. And Lord, we do pray for those in our city that had their homes affected. And we pray for your provision and your comfort and, and your peace. I know there's, there's churches in the city that had their facilities damaged and are, are looking for places to meet and are scrambling uh, this week. We pray for your faithfulness and, and their lives as well. And as we come and spend time in your word, we just pray that you would speak to us in a fresh way. That we could set aside distractions and you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. And we welcome you here, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Marvel, dictionary definition, something that causes wonder, admiration, or astonishment, a wonderful thing, a wonder, or a prodigy. When I say the word Marvel, what comes to your mind? Spider-Man. Captain America, Spider Man, Thor, Batman, right? did a little research on Marvel, and in 2009, they sold their movie rights to Walt Disney. And some were concerned that this would kind of ruin the vibe of the movies. They paid $4 billion for the movie rights. This article was written August 15, 2016, uh, that tells us MCU, which stands for Marvel Cinematic Universe, has grossed $10.5 billion from 2009. So from 2009 to when the article was written in August, $10.5 billion. They're grossing a billion dollars a movie, uh, uh, roughly. Article goes on to share that they have nine upcoming movies, and if those movies do as well as their predecessors, the franchise will double or even, even triple. So I was wondering, what is it about these movies and the comic books that, that inspire us so much? I mean, when a new Captain America comes out, it's got everybody's attention. I mean, everybody's talking about the Captain America. And on this last one, you had, you know, kind of a division about whether it was good or it was bad and all these types of things. But what is it about superheroes that, that captivates us? I think there's a part of us that realizes we need help that's beyond us, don't we? Right? We need a savior. We need, we need a Messiah. And so we look to these superheroes in, in a fantasy type of way. And what we're going to see in the Gospels, in these 27 verses, is this phrase that it was marvelous in our eyes, speaking of Jesus. To get to a place where we're at awe and wonder of Christ and who he is. Even those that are coming against Christ and ap- opposition, that are trying to kill him, get to that place of wonder and marvel. And, and I pray for us this morning that we could come to a greater appreciation of Christ. So let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 12. Then he began to speak to them in parables. Jesus has come into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry, cleansed the temple. Then the religious leaders challenged him and said, What right do you have to do this? By what authority do you come in 
and mess up the temple and turn over these tables and the money changers. And Jesus responds by saying, well, you answer the question, was John the Baptist from God or from men? They couldn't answer the question. Then Christ tells them this parable, this story. He's speaking to the elders, the chief priests, the scribes who are planning to kill him. He says, a man planted a vineyard and sent a hedge around it dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower and he leased it to the vine dresser and went to a far country. In Jerusalem to this day, there's vineyards in this region. It's very hilly region and rocky region and the vineyards are built on these slopes. A lot of work went into establishing the vineyard. Ancient vineyards passed down from family to family. As Christ is standing on the Temple Mount, he's probably pointing over to a vineyard that he can see. And he says, this guy went to all of this work to cultivate the land, to grow the grapes. Then he put a hedge around it, put in a tower, put in a vat, and then he leased it to vine dressers. They're gonna be stewards over this vineyard. Then he departed into a faraway country. Verse two now, at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. Makes sense, right? It's time for the fruit. It's time for the prophet. He sends a servant to go retrieve the fruit. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. That's how the vine dresser treated the servant who was coming for the prophet. Let's try to put this into our own vernacular. Maybe you own a business. Maybe you own a farm. Put somebody in charge. They're, they're the CEO. The prophets come in. You come ask for the, for the prophets. They've agreed for a wage to, to work for you. And the person that you send to get the fruit, to get the prophet, gets beat up by the CEO. Gets beat up by the person that you put in charge. Do you think you'd be making changes? In a heartbeat, right? We go on into verse four, and again, he sent another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. Gets worse. Now they're throwing stones at his head. He gets a head injury from this and departs in shame. This points to God sending prophets to the nation of Israel, Israel rejecting the prophets. It shows us the persistent love of God that God continued to send messenger and messenger to the nation of Israel, that he continues to send messenger and messenger to us. So the first thing that we marvel at this morning is that God's persistent love, that he pursues us in persistent love. I'm thankful in my life that God didn't give up after one attempt. Time and time again, knocking on the door of my heart to draw me to Christ. As a believer, as God's son, I'm thankful that he continues to persist in my life. That he doesn't just let me go my, my own direction. And here God is showing his patience and his long suffering to continue to send another servant, another prophet to the nation of Israel. In verse 5, and again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. So the third servant sent for the fruit is killed, doesn't stop there, sends many others. And the vine dresser would beat some and kill some. When we look at Israel's treating of the prophets in the Old Testament, with Elijah the prophet, they rejected him and sent him to the wilderness. That was done by the monarchy. That was done by Queen Jezebel and her husband Ahab. 
Isaiah tradition tells us that he was cut in sunder. He was cut in half. He was killed in that fashion. Zechariah was killed at the altar, the prophet Zechariah in 2 Chronicles 24 verse 21. Jeremiah's message was rejected over and over again by Israel. In the time of Jesus, John the Baptist was, was beheaded. So they have this habit and this routine of killing God's, God's prophets. But God persists. He doesn't stop there. In verse 6, Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. Why does God do this? Why does he continue to send all these prophets, even though they are killed and rejected? Then why would he send his son? It shows the way the father values the vineyard. The way that father values the nation of Israel and values Gentiles, values all people and wanting them to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. What stands out in verse 6 is having one son. So the owner of this vineyard has one son and he sends his son to try to receive the fruit. Also, he's his beloved son. He loves his son. That's the point that the father makes about Jesus. The father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased at the baptism of Jesus. The Mount of Transfiguration, he says, this is my beloved son, hear him. What does it mean for Jesus to be beloved by the Father? The apple of his eye, the source of his smile, the source of his joy, the pride of his heart. So this is my beloved son. I'm now sending to you, not a servant, not a prophet, but I'm sending you my son. We think of when we reject God, how does God respond? This is described by Charles Spurgeon. He says, if you reject him, speaking of Jesus, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest, the persistent love of God. How do they respond to the son? In verse 7, but those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. They have the exact opposite response to Jesus. The owner of the vineyard's thinking, ah, oh, they're, they're gonna respect my son. He's my beloved. But instead they go, this is our opportunity to be the heir. We'll kill him and take his place. We'll have the vineyard and we'll have the inheritance. How many people reject Christ because they want the vineyard? They're more concerned with the vineyard than a relationship with Jesus and a relationship with the Father. Say, I'll, I'll take the money. I'll take the fruit. I'll take a, a financially stable life. I, I'm more interested in just getting through and surviving than even considering a relationship with Jesus Christ. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. They killed the son. Remember, Jesus is speaking to those who are plotting his murder. Could you imagine knowing that you were going to be murdered and then to be able to speak to your murderers as they're planning it with a powerful short story? These guys are getting the point here. They're, they're understanding what Christ is, is telling them. In verse 9, Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dresser and give the vineyard to others. Psalms 103 says that God is gracious, that he's merciful, and he's slow to anger. In his persistent love, he continues to send his message. 
He sends his son. He knocks upon the door of our hearts. But if we say no to God's message and to God's son, judgment will come. Judgment will come. If I could speak to your heart this morning, if you have never opened up your heart and life to Jesus Christ, be careful to say no to Christ. Because at some point after saying no and saying no and saying no, God will confirm your decision. We don't know when that point is. But that's not something that we want to push. You never know when you're going to run out of time. I think of my own life. I grew up in a Christian home. I heard of who Christ is. Had a hard heart towards the Lord. Remember saying out loud, I thought about it and said about it, I don't want to serve God. I want to go do what I want. I want to go have fun. I want to be like my friends. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. But I had this idea in my head that when I got old and got married and had kids, then I would follow Christ. What if I would have died in those, that season of my life? What if I died in a car accident? I wasn't prepared for eternity. I wasn't prepared to, to enter in, into judgment. It's never too late. You can say no to Christ, no to Christ. But today, if you would open your heart to Christ, if you would accept him instead of reject him, you would receive eternal life. But there is judgment that comes if the course of a whole life, someone says no to Christ. In verse 10, have you not even read this scripture? I wonder what Christ's facial expressions were when, when he's speaking this. This is all these guys did, was read the scriptures. And they would log hours and hours, study the word in minute detail. I picture Jesus smirking a little bit. He's like, haven't you guys even read this in the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. In chapter 11, at the triumphal entry, they were singing a portion of this psalm, Hosanna, to Jesus. Now Jesus goes on, and he quotes Psalms 118. This is right out of Psalms 118, a prophetic psalm. He said, the stone that was rejected became the chief cornerstone. The picture is the building of the temple. They're standing at the temple. Christ now is probably pointing to the chief cornerstone. We know from history that they wouldn't quarry the rocks at the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount was sacred, so they would go down into the valley and cut these large, massive stones and then bring them up into place. So here's the cornerstone, and for some reason, they rejected it. For some reason, they said, nope, it's not the right measurements, and cast it aside. But then later, came back and said, nope, that's exactly what we need. The chief cornerstone was the most important piece in the building of the temple. Every dimension was off of that cornerstone. It was the foundation. Jesus is our foundation. Jesus is our rock. He was rejected and has become the chief cornerstone. Our salvation is in Christ. Our whole existence in Christ. Every decision that we make is to be off of Christ. What an amazing Savior, what an amazing God that we have, that he is our rock. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's all-powerful. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus described himself as this rock that if we fall upon him, we're broken. If we come to him in humility for salvation, we're broken in a beautiful way. Amen? He saves us, and he begins to build us up in, in his image. But if we reject Christ, Jesus says that he's the rock that falls on us, and we're crushed. He wins either way. He's that strong. He wins. But 
The question is, am I going to come to him, receive grace and forgiveness, or am I going to resist him and then experience his judgment? The key to verse 11 is this was the Lord's doing. Christ's rejection was the Lord's doing. It's not the religious leaders. It's not the Romans. It's not even you and I. Yes, the Jews had Jesus killed. The Romans had Jesus killed. I'm guilty of Christ's death because of my sin. But this was the will of the Father. The Father sent the Son. The Son was willing to come. The Bible tells us before the foundations of the world, Christ was slain. This was the Lord's doing. This isn't an accident. Yes, man is responsible for their willful choice, but God ordained for his son to be crucified for our sin because he loves us that much, and he loves us to that degree. It's the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. It's marvelous. We marvel at his persistent love. When was the last time that we just stopped and marveled at the gospel? Let's take a moment to meditate upon the gospel. What is the gospel? It's good news. That we sinners who've sinned against a holy God, that God loved us while we were still sinners. When we didn't want anything to do with God and a hard heart towards the Lord, he loved us. He demonstrated his love for us and Christ died for us while we were, were sinners. He invites us to repent, to turn from our sin and believe. And as we believe in his finished work upon the cross, we're forgiven completely, fully, fully forgiven by receiving this free gift of salvation upon the cross. All the things that we did prior to coming to Christ and all the sin that we would do in the future. I think about receiving Christ as my savior as a teenager and all of the sin that I've done since then and all of the sin that I will continue to do, unfortunately. And Christ has forgiven all of it. It doesn't seem worth it to me. It's like, why would God give his son to pay the price so that I could be forgiven? That's the beauty of it. God's love for the vineyard, God's love, love for us. And we're here on this snowy morning in January, forgiven. Isn't that great? Completely forgiven because of our belief in the gospel. The gospel doesn't stop there. The moment we receive Christ as our savior, we became the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity. Holy Spirit came and lived inside of us. We didn't earn that. We didn't deserve that. We didn't even go to a new believers class yet. I didn't even open our Bible. I mean, how do you know if you were serious? How do you know if you really meant it? And God's like, you, here's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's living inside of you. Gospel doesn't stop there. The moment that we receive Christ as our Savior, we became the sons and daughters of God. Entering into relationship, God could have said, okay, I've forgiven you, now just stay over there. Just do your own thing. I don't really want to have a relationship with you. I paid the price for you, but stay over there. And he says, no, you're my son, you're my daughter. With the gospel, we have an eternal home. He's prepared a place for us. And we stop and think about all this and we go, Jesus, you're so good. We marvel at you. We worship you. We stand in wonder of you. In verse 12 They sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the multitude, for they knew he'd spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. They got the message of Jesus' parable, but they continue in their rejection of Christ. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. The Pharisees means set-apart ones. They were set-apart to try to obey the law. Herodians were Jews who linked with Herod. 
In their name, they're saying they're followers of Herod, Herodians, very politically involved. Why would the chief priests need the Herodians? The Romans are in charge of Israel at this time. Israel had lost their ability to implement capable punishment. That had to come by the command of of the Romans. So the Herodians get involved as well. When they'd come, they'd said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and that you care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. They're saying, you don't let others input or you don't take into account the opinion of man. You only teach the, the word of God. But ultimately, this is just a nice butter-up statement. They're trying to kill him. They're trying to trap him in, in his words. Here's their question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Why is this a loaded cannon? Why would this provide ammo to try to kill Jesus? Because if Jesus says, nope, you don't have to pay taxes, the Romans are really upset. You know, mess, mess with the government's tax base and you're going to get some people upset. The Romans aren't going to be too, too excited about, about that. But what if he says, okay, you do have to pay taxes. You have a bunch of Jews that are trying to overthrow the Roman government and now they're really angry at Jesus. There seems like there's no way he can get out of this. Shall we pay or shall we not? But he said, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why do you test me? I like that. Jesus just calls it as it is. He says, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it and said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Caesar answered and said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Christ says, whose picture is on this coin? Well, it's Caesar's. He says, okay, render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar's. If you're looking for a biblical reason to not pay taxes, there is none. Is the Roman government corrupt? Were they using taxes in an ungodly way? Yes. And Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Romans 13 tells us that God has ordained governing authorities. Perfect timing as we head into tax season. You're probably starting to think about taxes. Yes, you've got to pay them. We should have an integrity in that. The bigger lesson, though, is render to God the things that are God's. Just as there is the image of Caesar on this coin, we have the image of God that has been placed upon us. This is really important. We go back to Genesis, and that's where God declared that Adam and Eve were created in his image. So this places value on the way that we see others and ourselves. What I'm going to tell you is not culturally sensitive. So let me just prepare you for this. I'm going to offend culture right now. Is all of mankind, humanity, is more valuable than the animal kingdom. We have a dog at home named Lady Lou. We love Lady Lou. She's nine years old. She's in Newfoundland. But Lady Lou has less value than our children. Why is that? Because our children are made in the image of God, and Lady Lou is not. I am a dog person. I like dogs, but I hate cats. You know, it's like, If you're a cat person, I'll pray for you. Pray that God would bring deliverance in your life and those kind of things. 
But we live in a backwards culture and society where we're putting more value on animals than we are upon God. But God says that humanity is the chief of his creation. He only says of men and women that we're created in his image. Not of animals, not of trees. It's not saying we don't value animals, that we don't value trees, but we put them in their proper place. Of God's creation, humanity is made as a triune being. You have a body, you have a soul, and you have a spirit. Animals don't have a spirit in the sense that they're going to live eternally, that they're going to live, live forever. That's something that God has given to men and women, mankind. We're created in God's image. So then this causes us to have a different worldview of the way that we see others and the way that we see ourselves. So when you see another person, do you see the image of God? When someone cuts you off in traffic, do you see idiot or image of God? (laughs) Most times we see idiot, don't we? It doesn't matter what condition that person is in. It doesn't matter what choices they're making, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever. The moment that they came into conception, they were in the image of God. And it will change the way I think about them. It will change the way I think about my spouse and my kids and everyone that I come in contact if I see them as the image of God. But it will also change the way that I see myself. What Jesus is saying here is if you are created in God's image, then you have to render something to God. There should be a response that comes with the fact that we're created in God's image. Yes, the government has the right to tax me, whether I like it or not, but God has the right to have all of me. And that's the challenge that that we find here. So this is the second thing that we marvel at, is we marvel that we bear his image, that we bear the image of God. When you look in the mirror, do you see the image of God? Or do you see yourself not fitting up to the industry standard? The world does a really good job of saying, all men need to look like this, all women need to look like, like this. Gang, they're photoshopped. Nobody looks like that, right? It's a picture. It's a movie. It's not, it's not reality. Run into that person at the grocery store early on a Sunday morning. They don't look like that. It's not even humanly possible to look like that. But then we look in the mirror and we go, well, I got to look like that. Look in the mirror and go, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. God made me in his image, and I get the joy of responding that and rendering myself unto God. Why is murder, suicide, assisted suicide, abortion, all such a big deal to God? Because it's marring and killing the image of God. It's stepping over this truth that God has given to us. So we marvel that we're created in his image. Then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and they asked him, saying, What marked the Sadducees, another religious group, is they didn't believe in the resurrection, meaning no life after death, no eternal life, no eternal judgment. As soon as you die, you're food for worms. A lot of people share that that view today. What's fascinating in verse 18 is the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not get along, but they're linked together in their opposition of Jesus. A lot of people come together in opposition of Jesus. Here's their question. Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. This does have its roots in the law. This was a command that was given in the law that if you're 
died and didn't have children, then your wife would marry your brother in order to, to have children and have offspring and carry on your name. Praise the Lord, we're not under the old covenant. I love my brother, but if I died, I wouldn't want my wife to, to marry him, right? Plus, we have kids, so we're, we're off, off the hook on, on that one. Question goes on. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Wow, she's a real black widow. Every brother that she marries has a tendency to die and be knocked off. Imagine if you were like brother number four. This, this is not looking too good for, for me. All the brothers have died before they were even, even able to have kids. Obviously, this is a hypothetical situation. And this is where they're going with the, with the question. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. And you can see them all smug. Oh, we got you. We got you, Jesus. If this whole resurrection is true, then marriage has to be for all of eternity. And so whose wife will she be? She was married to all of the brothers. There's a modern situation of this. Many of you know of Elizabeth Elliot. She's, she's one of my favorites. I was talking about her in uh, our men's accountability group Friday, and one of the guys brought up that she was married three times. And she was married to her husband, Jim Elliot, who passed away in Ecuador, was martyred. They were married for three years, from 1953 to 1956. Then 13 years later, she got remarried to a guy named Addison Lynch. He only lived four more years and died of cancer. So can you imagine? So she's married for three years. Her husband's martyred, gets remarried. Her second husband dies of cancer. Four more years later, she gets married to a guy named Lars Glenn, and thankfully he outlived her. She, she died in June of 2015, so she is married to, to three men. Godly marriage with all, all three men. So who's she married to in heaven? So that would be the nature of this, this question. And Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God? Interesting, they too devoted their life to studying the scriptures, but Jesus says you don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. We can spend time in the word, but yet still not know God. How come? Because of the condition of our hearts. And that's sobering. As we come and spend time in the word of God, of God, I want my heart to be open to you. I really want to be open to, to learning. And they denied the power of God. Jesus goes on to explain, for when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. We're not angels in heaven. That's a misconception. We're like the angels in that we're not married or given in marriage. There will not be marriage in heaven. On Fridays from 4 to 5, I get to be part of uh, Calvary Live. It's uh, the Calvary Chapel station in our state, and I just answer questions. People call in, and they have questions about the Bible or things that are going on in their lives. It's Grace FM 101.7. And on Friday, a lady called in, and I could tell that she was distraught. And I can share this, because this, this was on the radio. And, and she said, my husband died in a car accident in August. Was there one moment, and he, he was, he's gone the next. 37 years old, 
We've got three young daughters. She says, I've been pressing into the Lord. I've been in the word. And this week I read in the gospels that there isn't going to be marriage in heaven. And earlier in the day, I've been studying this, this passage of scripture. She goes on to express how difficult it is, how she goes to bed every night alone, turns the, the light off. Friday when she called, it was their anniversary. And she's saying, my heart is completely broken to come to discover that my husband and I, we won't be married, married in heaven. So attempted to try to answer her question, read this section of scripture to her and said, you're right. There isn't going to be marriage in heaven. But went on to explain, we will recognize each other in heaven. It's not that we won't have any knowledge of each other in heaven. How do we know that for sure? Because remember, Peter, James, and John saw Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. They recognized Moses and Elijah without introduction. So even though we won't be married in heaven, I think we're going to recognize each other in heaven. We're going to recognize David without needing to be filled in on what his life was here on earth. I hope that Amber and I will know we had something special here on earth, that we had a unique relationship together here on earth. Then shared with this woman as well that in heaven there's no lack. It's not like because we're not married that somehow heaven is going to be lacking. We're going to be in perfect relationship with God and perfect relationship with one another. We will have eyes for no other. Together, corporately, we're the bride of Christ. We're married, married to Christ. And so we have this amazing relationship with Christ and we have this amazing relationship with one another. So some of you right now are heartbroken to come to realize that you're not going to be married in heaven like this woman that I was talking to. And please pray for her. I really want as a church family to commit to praying, praying for her. I do know she's plugged in uh, to a church, but I know it's a difficult time for her. But then there's also others of you that are going, I am so relieved that I am not going to be married to my spouse for all of eternity. I, mean, I just could not imagine that. So, so I want to encourage you this morning. Your marriage is temporary on this earth. It's something you will do on this earth. And in light of eternity, it's, it's just for a moment, isn't it? And we go on and we look at what, how Christ answers this question. He gets to the heart of the issue for them. He says, but concerning the dead that rise... Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses has God appear to him with the burning bush, and God says, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The Sadducees rejecting resurrection, life after death. God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. He says, I am, present tense. Abraham is alive and well. Isaac is alive and well. Jacob is alive and well. And he's saying, guys, you should have read this and know that there is the resurrection. In verse 27, he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. To reject the resurrection is to be gravely mistaken. Christ proved that he is the God of the resurrection. He died upon the cross, predicted his resurrection, and three days later he rose again. Third thing that we marvel at in the text is that God is the God of the resurrection. He's the God of the resurrection. How does this affect us to know that Christ rose from the dead? We sang this morning. The words were up on the screen. 
the lion and the lamb. He's the lamb at the cross. He's the lion at the resurrection who roars that he has defeated sin and death. Grave, the grave, death did not get the last word. First, this causes us, this affects us to know that we have a heart for the lost. The Bible would tell us that all live eternally. The question is, are they resurrected to heaven or to eternal judgment? So may God stir in us a reality of what that means to care for those that don't know Christ as their Savior. Also, it gives us tremendous hope for those that who have died in Christ. If you have lost a loved one, a close friend who is a believer, it really is not appropriate to describe it in saying, I have lost them. I understand the sentiment. I think it's appropriate to be able to say But church, we have not lost them. They are more alive than they've ever been before. We know exactly where they're at. They're in the arms of Jesus. They've graduated. Death wasn't the last word. It was the first word. It was welcome home. It was enter into the reward. Enter into eternal life. So we marvel at that and we rejoice in that. And then also it gives us tremendous hope personally. We're going through this life knowing that we are pressing forward towards heaven. Each Monday morning, we are a Monday closer to eternal life. I believe there's 52. We're going to do 52 in 2017. But each one, we can be closer to coming into God's presence. Every step, we're closer into God's presence. Hebrews 6 tells us that we have an anchor for our soul And that the anchor is at the throne room of God, which is unique to think about. Because it's the opposite of a ship. A ship is anchored at the bottom of the ocean, beneath the storm and beneath the waves. But our anchor, picture an anchor above the water. Not only above the water, but in heaven. Eternal life, the throne room of God. And that provides us hope and a refuge throughout our lives. So Hebrews 6, verse 18 and 19 says this. Just take it in and listen to it. That by two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Where's the anchor? In the presence of God behind the veil, at the very throne room of God, in heaven, eternal life, and that is the anchor of our soul. So church, we marvel at this. We marvel at his persistent love. Sends the prophets and ultimately sending his son. We marvel that we bear his image. You bear the image of God. We marvel that he's the God of the resurrection. Let's pray together. Jesus, so many times we take you for granted just go through our lives failing to be in awe and wonder of your love for us. Jesus, I'm sorry for getting busy and getting distracted and getting selfish and afresh. I just want to say, Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me and rising again. We fail to see that we and others are made in the image of God. I pray for those this morning that are considering suicide, that don't see a point of continuing to live. Would you reveal your love to them? 
If that's you this morning, would you receive these words that you're fearfully and wonderfully made? That your life is not your own? And accept that. And even in the midst of the difficulty, choose life, choose to live. Jesus, we thank you that you, you are the God of the resurrection. Death is real, it's brutal, it's never satisfied, it's what we're headed towards. But we know in you it doesn't have the final word. We know where loved ones are. We know if they were in Christ that they're with you. We also know that there's some right here this morning that need to receive you, that need to come into relationship with you. I would ask if you've never received Christ as your Savior, we've talked about it this morning, about rejecting Christ and accepting Christ, would you receive the gospel? Would you turn from your sin and believe in Jesus, believe that he's God, that he died for you and rose again, and invite him to be the Lord of your life? If you've never made that decision, and you're being drawn to Christ this morning, would you raise your hand, leave it up, hold it up, and then I'm going to lead you in a prayer, say a prayer with you for you to receive Christ as your Savior. If that's you, just go ahead and raise your hand high, make eye contact with me, and respond to Christ. Say, yeah, I want to receive Christ as my Savior. We'll just wait for a few moments. If God's drawing you, praise the Lord. Awesome. Anybody else that says that's me? Praise God. I see your hand in the back. Praise the Lord. If you need to respond, raise your hand to the Lord. And let's say this prayer together. Jesus, I believe that you're God, that you died for my sin and rose again. I don't deserve it, but I receive your forgiveness. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. In Jesus' name. You can put your hands down. Father, as a church family, we rejoice. We ask that you bless those that have received you as our Savior. We're so thankful at this moment as they believe their sins are forgiven. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They've become the son, the daughter of God. They have eternal life. Lord, we rejoice in that. And we just pray that you would bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. God is good.